please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. This morning's portion of scripture is in the form of a poem, and it begins at 1 John 2 verse 12 and goes through verse 14. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is his inerrant, infallible, inspired word. It can never be broken. The word of God, 1 John 2, 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for how each passage in the holy book is precious in its own way. And this is a precious text of scripture. So I pray now that the words of my mouth as the preacher and the thoughts, questions, and the attention of each one of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My dad was in charge of running several businesses over the course of his career. Now he just runs his garden. And I noticed over the years in the different companies or the different positions that he had, he was often put in a position where he needed to come into a department or address a problem that was utterly chaos and clean it up. Sound familiar? I mean, this is work. Work has to do with going and cleaning up usually somebody else's problem, sometimes your own. I think of this as order out of chaos, and it's a good description of leadership. It also happens to be a good description of the purpose of the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Talk about chaos. The, if you want to summarize the book of Judges, you can do it this way. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We're all headed in different directions, doing what we think is best. And the judge in those days is someone that God would raise up to bring order out of chaos. What's needed, therefore, in a situation like that is an appeal from a trusted leader to the real needs and hurts or problems of the hour. What's needed, if I may put it this way, is a pastor's appeal. And that's what we have before us in this morning's passage, verses 12 through 14 of 1 John chapter 2. But what's the nature of this pastor's appeal? What's true about it, and what can we learn about it for the different 
roles that we may have in our lives? What can we learn about it as a church? Where is there chaos that needs order in your heart and in your life? What about us as a congregation? What about you as your family? I want to look at this text this morning at three characteristics that flow from this pastor's appeal. And the first thing that we notice here is that it is it has an urgent placement. If you turn the page back to the beginning of 1 John, um, John is rolling along. He introduces his letter in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then he begins with the message that he has heard in 1 John 1, 5, that God is light. And he develops that theme of light with, with three, I guess, efforts to expose false teaching which goes through the end of chapter 1. Then he addresses little children in 1 John chapter 2. And he gives us three ways that we can know that we're truly belonging to God in the way that we live our lives. And then there's this poem. It sort of interrupts or almost pauses the flow of John's letter. And you can tell, at least in my Bible, it's set out in special type. It's indented italics and so forth but it isn't altogether new because as we saw first john chapter 2 verse 1 he already addresses us as little children so he begins by addressing us again in verse 12 as little children and that will come up again in verse 18 children and then in verse 28 children in fact john loves to speak to his congregations that are reading this letter or hearing it explained to them, he loves to address them as children. I think it relates to his role as a father in the church. But it's it's an urgent, it's urgently placed, it's kind of a pastoral pause because of the direct address that we see. I'm writing to you children. I'm writing to you fathers. I'm writing to you young men. And then he repeats it. There's an urgency in the repetition as well. I used to be a teacher. And so if I pause my lesson and say, pay attention now, students. This is important. And so teachers do this. They pause and they address their students directly. I I stop talking about, I don't know, cell respiration and or, you know, mitosis. That's what I used to teach science. Say, now, hang on. Or I might say, you know, Johnny or Susie, this is, this is really important for your future education. And I might address them specifically about just sort of something seem- to them seemingly random, but to me as the teacher, I know what I'm doing. So this may seem to us as readers of the gospel seemingly random, kind of coming, why is John stopping all of a sudden and talking to these people in the church? Well, to us as readers, it may seem as a student, it might seem random, but John has his reasons, which we'll see in just a few minutes. And it's repetitive. Teachers do this too. They say, this is going to be on the test. I'm going to repeat it. And, you know, some students are still sort of staring off into the space. Uh, 
Kids, I'm not talking about any one of you in particular. Repetition proves that John's message and convictions haven't changed. Notice what he says. I am writing to you. I am writing to you. I am writing to you. But then the verb tense changes slightly in the second half. I write to you. Or we might even say, I have written to you. A good teacher is steady. And there's nothing surprising here. In fact, it sort of reminds me of what he said just a few verses ago. He says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment in verse 7 of chapter 2. Then again, it is new in a sense. I'm writing to you. I have written to you. It's new. It's old. John's message hasn't changed. He's a faithful teacher. I love Jude chapter 3, where Jude, uh, the, brother of our, the half-brother of our Lord, he says, I'm writing to help you contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It's the old paths of Isaiah's day. But let's look at one verse, speaking of repetition. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 51. After telling a chapter is full of parables, it's like a huge basket, and each one is the interesting treasure that you turn around and look at and study. There's all these probably 10 12 different curious parables, almost like Rubik's Cubes, if you will. And, and Jesus says in verse 51, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And verse 52 of Matthew 13 says, and therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is my motto for preaching, by the way, this verse. Every time I get behind the pulpit, I'm looking to bring forth what you already know and remind you and some things that you didn't know before, what is new and what is old. And back to 1 John, that's what John is doing. I am writing to you what is old. I write to you what is new. And what is new isn't radically different from what is old. Maybe it needs to be applied in a new way, but it is an urgent appeal that we see here. That's my first point. This pastor's appeal is, is urgent. Secondly, this pastor's appeal has a gospel focus. It's interesting. Everything that's said in these verses, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, verse 12, because you know him who is from the beginning, verse 13. Because you have overcome the evil one, verse 14. Because you know the Father, because you know him who is from the beginning, there's a repetition there. And because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Everything he says here is basic gospel truth. This pastoral pause, this, this, pastor, this pastor's appeal is not... The teacher isn't pausing to give something that's 
so new and complicated that you have no idea what he's talking about. Everything in here he's already mentioned in the letter itself. With the one exception, perhaps, of overcoming the evil one, that's a new thought that's introduced in this particular part of Scripture. However, by introducing it here, based on the gospel that he's already explained, John will come back to triumph and victory in Christ in this letter again and again and again from here on out. We're going to hear about it almost every Sunday, our victory in Christ. What is this basic gospel? One, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes, but Christians need to know, and all Christians do know, that you are not forgiven because you ask for it, although that's a part of it. You are forgiven because of his name, because who he is. One commentator calls this a covenantal notion of forgiveness. What's a covenant? A covenant is, to put it simply, if someone embraces you in love and never lets go. You have been forgiven of your sins in Jesus' name is a covenantal statement. It's a statement that says, my name, who I am, my character has been given to you and it will never be taken away. And so your standing before God as forgiven is not ultimately dependent on you, but on his name, the name of Jesus, which we've been learning about in the Apostles' Creed. That's ba- that's just, this is gospel 101. This is a gospel focus, a, a simple Christian truth. Also, the central place of knowing God is here. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Knowing God from the beginning. Knowing the purpose of life, the purpose of the redeemed life, all of life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever and then the crucial place of spiritual warfare in the christian life and the absolute guarantee that we have triumph or victory we have conquered all his and our enemies through the cross and then the importance of abiding in the word persevering and not giving up on the faith whole books of the bible are written on this theme of abiding or persevering in your faith so this has a gospel focus. This, this pastor's appeal is not only urgently placed in our text, but it's laser-like focused on the gospel. And thirdly, my third point is this pastor's appeal has a very personal quality to it. I've touched on this already with the name, my children. If, if I were to, to speak to you and say, my children, children of Mercy Hill, And I'm not just talking about the little ones. That's quite personal, isn't it? It might even be a little presumptive to some of your thinking. Who are you to call me your child? I'm old enough to be your father. This personal quality is seen here because while the gospel basics apply to all believers at every stage in our lives, all these things that I've told you about, John seems to subdivide the lessons to different categories of Christians in the church. And you see the three categories. Children, fathers, and young men. Now, I don't think these categories relate specifically to chronological age. 
I think these categories relate to spiritual maturity, but they have this personal quality nonetheless. What gives John's pastoral appeal its personal quality is the fact that he's speaking to children of the faith, some of whom may be young chronologically, but some of whom may be in their 70s or 80s potentially. It's personal because he's speaking to fathers and to young men. Well, what do we see about these children and these categories? Well, at this point, I'm not exactly sure who these persons are. One way to read this, Augustine reads this passage as seeing children, young men, and fathers as different stops on the stage of the Christian life. So one person is related to all three. I tend to think children here, because he's already addressed the church as children in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and then again in verse 18 and 28, and about five other times in the letter, I tend to think the children is an address to the whole church, all of us. And then fathers and young men are dividing the church into the mature Christians and the less mature Christians. So that's how I'm reading it this morning. So what's the appeal to the whole church? The appeal to the whole church is calling us as children to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, to crave the milk of the word like babies. We know from Jesus' last words to his disciples in John chapter 21, he says, my children, don't you have something to eat? And he addresses the 11 disciples there after his resurrection as children. You see, the Christian is not a person who ever gets past being a child. Jesus, multiple times in the gospel, says we're to repent and become like little children. And he says, in fact, the kingdom of God belongs to children. So chronological age children somehow are not only emblematic of what it means to be a follower of Christ, but the kingdom itself belongs to them, which is why we baptize them. So this is given to children here, this promise that your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And I'm seeing this is true of all of us. It's a, it's a reminder to all of us about what we need to have in mind. And I think this repetition that our sins are forgiven in verse 12, and then it comes up again a little bit, there's another address to children that they know the Father I think it's because we're going to see in just a couple of weeks that there are people in the church that are disturbing the believers, the children of the church, meaning all of the believers, with false teaching that somehow suggests that their sins aren't forgiven. And so he's writing to them to shore them up or to firm up what they know to be true. Verse 18, for instance, says, Children, it is the last hour. Many antichrists have come. And so before he gets to that part of his teaching, he wants the children to know that their sins are forgiven and that they have known the Father. And then he moves to address two other groups in the church. And here I see the church being separated into the aged and the wise and those 
who are relatively new in their faith. I think it's important to think about young men and fathers as we're talking about this. I want to remind you that maturity or growing in your faith is part of what it means to be a Christian. We don't receive salvation and then get frozen at that point and never ever change ever again. Over and over again we see in the Bible the importance of growing in our faith. In fact, the motto of Mercy Hill is that we aspire to help you thrive in Christ. We want you to experience healthy growth. So Ephesians 4 talks about how the, all the members of the body are to grow up into fullness of, the, of maturity, even to the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And I mentioned 1 Peter 2, how we're to be like babies. 1 Peter says that we're to be like babies, craving the pure milk of the word, and then he says that you may grow thereby. So the word of God is the means of our growth. And then 1 Timothy 3.1 is an interesting text in spiritual maturity. In talking about elders or fathers in the church, Timothy says, it is good if you aspire to be a father or an elder in the church. So what I'm saying is, is that in seeing the, the category of fathers and young men, what John is saying is, he's saying, don't stay put. Don't stay static. You need to grow. That's one of the messages here. I'm writing to you young men, he's saying, so that you'll know that you're, you're making good progress, but I don't want you to stay there. I want you to aspire to growth in your faith so that someday you, you who are young men can be a father. If you are a young man, a new believer in Christ, male or female, by the way, you have a calling to live up to your station as, as John is describing it, but you're also called to move past that, to not stay in immaturity. And the two themes that I see that young men are being encouraged in is the theme of strength and victory. Take a look. I'm writing to you, young men, this is the second half of verse 13, because you have overcome the evil one. You can uh, translate that word overcome as to have victory or to triumph. You've conquered the evil one. That's strength and victory. And then that theme comes back in the second half of verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. You are strong. And a young man is strong. I was sharing with someone, I don't remember who it was. Um, um, anyway, w- when I was a teenager, late teenager, I was a laborer on a job site. That was how I earned money in the summers. And I could carry an entire sheet of drywall just like this. And I definitely couldn't do that now. Now I'd be like, I'd get a young man and he'd do it or I'd say, you get the other end and he'd roll his eyes while he's helping me carry the thing that he could probably very well carry himself. So strength is a characteristic of of men who are young chronologically, but it's also a characteristic of men who who are spiritually, if you will, no longer children. You are strong, he says, and the word of God abides in you. And again, you have overcome the evil one. So strength and victory. So uh, in his sermon on this, Charles Spurgeon notes 
the following virtues that young men have and that they need to aspire to increase in. Faith, the strength of faith. A young man should have, if you are a young man and you're no, no, no longer just a new believer, but you've, you've got past the foyer of the church, so to speak, and you're actually a young man in Christ now. You've got a few miles on the tires. The, the, uh, the period of breaking in the engine has, has stopped, and you're now a young man in Christ. You're not yet a veteran. As a young man, you have the strength of faith. You know what it means to see and believe. You have the strength of faith. There's also endurance, and a young man has endurance. I mean, just physically, biologically, if you're a young man, you can work all day through the heat of the day and then into the night. Take a quick break, get right back at it. And a young man in Christ, similarly, has great endurance. A young man is a great worker for Christ, which is to say he knows that there's work to be done and he's ready to serve. And while he may need to be asked, he won't need to be asked twice. And he knows his place. It's as a worker for Christ. And so he's available. What do they say? A fat Christian. Faithful, available, and teachable. F-A-T. That's a young man in this text. A young man is also someone, speaking of uh, strength and victory, is someone who's able to resist attack. I have this quote from Spurgeon. Satan's empire, he says, consists of our yielding to his will. But when we resist him, we have, in a way, already overcome him. See, Satan has no defenses. All, All he can do is attack us, and when we resist him, he flees from us. And a young man in Christ has learned to do this. He's learned to fight the spiritual battle. He knows what his weapons are, and he uses them. And not only is a young man able to resist attack, but a young man is able to advance in Christ. And I would emphasize here the central role of the Word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? We sung Psalm 119. By living according to your word. Psalm 119, verse 9 and 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Those are two verses that every young man has memorized and actively lives them out in his life by committing Scripture to memory, which, by the way, is easier to do when you are a young man. These are the qualities that young men have, and if you are a young man in Christ, and these qualities are not true of you, That's why John is writing. He's writing these things to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one, but you need to overcome him. You can't quit in overcoming him. What you know to be true and your standing in Christ doesn't necessarily always match your practice. And so the strength and victory of young men is written to encourage you as young men and women, relatively new believers, but not a new believer anymore. A young believer, we'll say, not a new believer. But it's also written to challenge you. That if you're a young man in Christ, but you're acting like a child or a new believer, by constantly failing in the spiritual battle, 
by neglecting the word of God, by lacking endurance, by struggling with your faith, by not being a great worker for Christ, not a fat Christian, faithful, available, teachable, but unfaithful, unavailable, and unteachable. (laughs) Brother elders, how many young men have we dealt with that are unfaithful, unavailable, and unteachable? But they think they're young men in Christ. So this is a pastor's appeal, you see, this morning to this group in the church, the young men and women of the church who have made some advancement in their faith, not so much that they can be described as fathers or mothers, but enough that they can be described as faithful workers in Christ. But what about the other category? What about fathers? The instruction to fathers is interesting because it's exactly the same in both cases except for the verb. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, verse 13. Verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I guess fathers are boring. They only get one command, and it's the same command. And it's an old command because it has to do with something that's old, what was from the beginning. And I guess it hasn't changed And this is what a father is. What he heard about God from the beginning, he holds to this day, and he has not changed. What he knows about God, he holds to this day, and he has not changed. See, fathers have been instructed in the things of God They are persons of maturity. They are men and women of stability. And because they're fathers, they're parents, which means they understand what it means to have young men in their lives, young women, to have children in their lives, and to provide for them and to take care of them. In particular, to care for the souls of others, because we're talking about spiritual maturity A father has known him who is from the beginning and out of that deep well of knowledge and experience which has been tried and tested over the years, suffered many setbacks and he can take off his shirt and you can see his scars. And out of that, he is able to provide for and care for and love and nurture in compassion and patience the children and the young men of the church. You see, a father, unlike the cultural stereotype, is not someone who is stern and unapproachable, but a father or a mother is someone who has learned to love. See, young men, in our brashness when we're young, we're still working on the speaking the truth in love part. But fathers have learned to do that. And you need fathers in the church for that exact reason. We need young men as well. Because sometimes fathers love and they don't speak the truth. And speaking of children, fathers father, meaning they beget children. And since we're talking about a spiritual father here, I'm talking about spiritual birth. A father is someone who has led another person to Christ, 
whose life, if, if you haven't done that verbally, your life is a testimony. It's a gleaming, shining monument to the glory of God. It's an undeniable proof that God is real if you are a father or a mother in Israel. And so a great weakness of the church is that men and women become fathers and mothers in the church and they, they're only what they've known from the beginning stays with them. And it's never shared or poured out for other people. These are sterile, if you will, spiritual moms and dads. But if you're a mature father in the faith, you'll hear this pastoral appeal. These things are true of you. Let them be true of you. This pause for you as fathers to reflect on your maturity. What kind of father are you? Are you dependable, reliable? We're asking the young men to be faithful, available, and teachable. What about you, fathers? Are you taking care of business? Have you learned the deep things of God? Have you tested those things? Are you still struggling with some of the basics in the faith? Is your knowledge of God comprehensive? Do you know systematic theology? Do you know biblical theology? Have you read from Genesis to Revelation as a habit such that it's now ingrained into your life that that godly, spirit-filled ritual of immersing yourselves in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament? Do you know the catechisms? Can you teach basic doctrine to the babes in Christ? If someone asks you a question about why you believe what you believe, can you tell them? In a way that, that wins their heart, obviously by the power of the Holy Spirit. Fathers, I write to you. Fathers, I have written to you. As I conclude this morning, there's nothing like becoming a grandfather, speaking of fathers. It's been very humbling for me as I think about being a grandfather, and it's not just the grandchildren, by the way, it's my children who are now parents that cause me to think more deeply about my role as a dad. And even my adult children who don't have kids yet has given me serious pause even in this morning's text, because God's writing to me. I'm not just a father in the church, an elder. I'm a father of my own children, and I'm a grandfather. In fact, I've taught pastors. That makes me kind of a father of spiritual fathers. So I'm, I'm a pop-pop across the board, Barry. I'm in trouble. <laughs> I cannot get away. How does this morning's sermon shed light on the stage of life that you're in, on your own spiritual journey? The church needs more young men and less children. So this is Promotion Sunday, where the children are being asked to step into the role of young men. The church needs more fathers and mothers and less young men and women. So this is Promotion Sunday. If you're a young man, I'm inviting you to be promoted into that next rank, if you will. And the beautiful thing is, that doesn't kill the church 
Because the more fathers and mothers we have, the more babies we have. And we begin to see spiritual multiplication as spiritual maturity increases, which is why your elders as a church, your spiritual fathers, the elders of Mercy Hill, don't focus on church growth, but on church health. And that's what this sermon is. They told me to preach it. We want you to be a healthy, thriving Christians, and healthy Christians grow and multiply, just like healthy organisms. So since it's Promotion Sunday, here's a checklist. If you would like to become a young man and you're a child, you not only need to believe the gospel, but you need to be able to explain it to a newcomer. You not only need to know that your sins are forgiven in his name, but you need to experience real spiritual victories in this area of forgiveness. You not only believe the gospel, but you live the gospel. That's what a young man does. You're not waiting for work, which is what a child does, but you're seeking out kingdom responsibility in your life. That's a checklist. Here's a checklist if you're a young man or woman and you'd like to be promoted to a father, you aspire. The beginning that John refers to isn't 100% clear, but I think it means at least this, from the first time that you heard the gospel, you're maintaining that faith. So a father reviews his life and can see that the joy of my salvation that I had in the beginning is regularly being renewed in my life. And while everyone needs to be reminded of the basics, children and apprentices or young men, fathers know God in a deep, penetrating way. And they don't need to get beyond this. So fathers, you know you're ready to be you're promoted, young men, to a father if you're done with novelties and you're at rest. You're settled in your understanding of the truth. And really the whole point of 1 John is that you and I would become fathers in this sense to have the knowledge of God that results in a real relationship. So you can talk about your faith not just in principle but because you have a relationship with the living God. You speak with God and he speaks with you. And you've come to the place where you see all of life in terms of glorifying and enjoying God. And you're encouraging. You've got a, a passel of kids or young men that you're helping to move along in this understanding, in this biblical worldview. Two weeks ago, my sermon was actually entitled Knowing God. So fathers understand that Knowing God is a love relationship, I said. Fathers understand that, that in new circumstances, when life throws curveballs at you, God never changes, and neither do you. Knowing God, I said two weeks ago, means that you know that your work and your relationships are different because of your knowledge of God. 
Knowing God means that you walk as Jesus walked and you keep his commandments. That's what fathers do. I want to conclude by reading a quote from a book. Sorry. I read this a couple weeks ago. Uh, This is Bond of Brothers by Wes Yoder. He's talking about the glory and shame of fathers and sons. And here's the quote. In order for a man to pass through the tough years, which is a young man, to becoming a father, to pass through the tough years from strength to wisdom as his glory, he must undergo a painful and sometimes bitter experience. Young men have strength. Fathers have wisdom, is what he's saying. It took two physical falls and several of another kind for my life confession to change from, quote, I am strong, unquote, to I am weak, but God is strong, unquote. To become wise, a man must become broken, for the strength of wisdom is greater than physical strength. A young man seldom knows this, and if he is unprepared for the broken places of life, Well, that's the crux of this book. Few men migrate well from one season of life to the next, and a few older guys I know, and few older guys I know even have a language to explain how to do this. Young men tell me all the time, no one in your generation talks to us unless they want something from us. Well, I'm talking to you. God wants something from you. You need to grow. And this is a pastor's appeal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for making such a personal appeal to us this morning in, these, in this deep, penetrating poem in our, in our scripture today. And I pray that men and women, boys and girls, we would all hear and be reminded of these lessons that belong to children, to young men, and to fathers. And I pray that we would celebrate on a promotion Sunday decisions that are made for Christ, to believe in Christ for the first time, to know that my sins can be forgiven. We would celebrate on promotion Sunday children becoming young men, young men becoming fathers, and fathers being faithful in their calling. And that makes for a healthy church and a beautiful kingdom. So hear this prayer, Lord, and answer it according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. Every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.